Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Good morning. Let me invite you to open a Bible to John chapter 20. If you're visiting with us today, for the first time or second or third, uh, this is not a a one-off sermon for us. We've actually been going through the Gospel of John for about two years now, two and a half years, and we just happen to be right here, John 20. Last week, Palm Sunday, we actually preached on the resurrection. We're ahead of schedule a little bit, uh, but we're right there. He's risen, and uh, we're going to be looking at uh, one of his appearances this morning. So John chapter 20, beginning in verse 19, and we'll just go to the end of the chapter. John writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen, and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written 
so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank You so much for Your Word. And uh, it is all our hope now that You would give the Holy Spirit. Uh, We have no hope of raising the dead or of having the life in us become more lively as it ought to be without the mercy of our risen Lord. So please come, even as you met with these, that first Easter Sunday and the next Sunday. So this Sunday, prove yourself to be alive. Work in our hearts, we pray, by the Word of God. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Maybe you saw it in the text that we just read together, but the entire thing takes place behind not just closed doors, but locked doors, sealed doors. This world really can be an unsettling place for those who are in the world but no longer of it. Of course, this means to make us long for another world. Contentment with this world is really antithetical. It's opposite the cross of Jesus. It's antithetical to the resurrection of Jesus. Both of those things together, they preach to us all heavenly consolation. And if that's of little consequence to us, it really only shows how far removed we are from the first actions of the risen Jesus and what He discerns to be our greatest needs on earth as we aim to follow Him. This peace that combats all fear, this power that we need to carry out His commission in the world, this people to bear us witness over and over and over again that He is alive, this presentation that's meant to remove every single doubt we could ever have, this presentation that produces a worshipful faith. And so as you sit this Easter Sunday, what do you think you need most? And is that thing, whatever it is, do you think that you can find that in this world? Are you looking for it here? Are you looking for it now in this world? Or are you looking for it in the Lord Jesus Christ? How you answer that question will say a lot about the kind of life you'll live, either solidly for the risen Savior of the world, or as if at a practical level or a functional level, level, there were no actual Savior at all. That's how Thomas lives for like a week. Dear ones, listen, it is high time for the church to know the resurrection and the life again. To be fearless Christians, to be forward Christians, to be faithful Christians. And did you know, historically, that's why we gather like this on the Lord's Day, not just on Easter Sunday, but every Lord's Day. It's to be reminded after a week out there in the crazy world that all is actually not lost and gone to hell, that Christ is risen, and that we're to be His risen people also. Friends, if you don't know, John has written this gospel 
that every single one of you in this room this morning, every single one of you may believe that Jesus is the divine Christ and that believing that you would have, here it is, you would have life in His name. Do you have that life today? And if so, is it awake? Is that life well in you? Is it a lively life? Is your life for Christ out in the open? Or is it kind of concealed within doors like these? Is it feeding off of the truth that Jesus really is alive? Man, how we do need to eat of that meal. So, let's come to our text, starting in verse 19. With the peace of the risen Christ to combat all our fears. Uh, there are more than Thomas's doubts in these verses. Here are the disciples, they're gathered together, evening of the first Easter, and the doors, as I said, are sealed. They're locked, is what it says in the text. They're on edge, and they are on guard. So, what will the repercussions be of having followed a man that's just been crucified? Even if, as Mary said already, that she's seen him alive from the dead. And Jesus had real enemies who could apply real pressure, and that's why he's tried, if you remember this, John 14, 15, 16, 17, he's tried to prepare them for that. If the world has hated me, it will not stop with me, but it'll also come after you on my account. So there is reason for the doors to be locked. There's cause for fear. These are men who, from one to the other, have wives, families, they've had jobs, reputations, standing in the community. They have lives that could be pressured, persecuted, put to the test, and even finally put out, lost. And just the other day, I heard through the missionary grapevine that a brother in Christ had been martyred. He'd been killed while he was teaching the gospel in somewhere Asia. We're also told that he's not the first in his family. He has another sibling who also had been martyred for Christ in that place, for teaching the gospel. That happened this week. I've seen a pastor recently thrown out on his back and arrested for protecting children from groomers who are propagating sexual immorality in spaces of child development. He was arrested for being a public nuisance. He, the pastor, And this is happening all over. And it has been since Genesis chapter 3. And it won't stop until that ultimate, final, consummating appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact is, each of these men in this room, in our passage, will go on to experience many of the things that they feared in this moment, won't they? They will be hunted, they will be hurt. At least in the world's eyes, they'll be halted by the sword, by the cross, by the flame, by the arena, thrown to lions, all these kinds of things, exiled to Patmos, John himself. And the question is, how then do these trembling men in our passage come to find the boldness to endure all of that for Jesus? 
How is it that they come to leave the bolted room behind to live out in the open for Christ? If you're a skeptic of Christianity this morning, that's a question I think you need to consider. But John just tells us in verse 19. He just says, the risen Jesus appeared to them. This risen Jesus stood among them. He held service that first Easter Sunday. Jesus showed up and led them in worship. So, what was a locked door to him who, by the power of God, had just rolled the stone away? Once the seal of death was broken, what was the seal of a door to the risen Lord? And what then became, I wonder, of the doubts that tried their best to seal up those disciples and keep them locked away? I think we see when Peter, for instance, addresses himself to pastors, to elders, in his first letter, 1 Peter, it's in chapter 5, he's trying to put wind in their sails and thus into the sails of their suffering congregations when a few decades and many fiery trials later, Peter calls himself not just a fellow pastor, but a witness to the sufferings of Christ, which is kind of odd. It's a little strange because we know that while Peter saw some of the trials of Christ, we also know that he fled, he forsook him ahead of the cross of Christ. So when did Peter witness the sufferings of Christ intended to propel endurance in the faith for these suffering Christians, if not right here in our passage. Do you see the order of service? Jesus appears to them, and He then attends to their hearts. Though these disciples have denied Him and doubted Him and forsaken Him, His first words upon arrival are not, how could you? After all I've done for you. They're not scolding words. They're reassuring words. They're words of grace. Peace be with you. He might just as well have said, fear not, little flock, in any way. And in verse 20, he shows them why. He invites them to investigate the basis of such a sermon. He displays his hands and his side, those rich wounds yet visible above, in beauty glorified. He lets them see them here. In effect, he shows them. He shows them he's not somebody else that he's the same Jesus that they've come to know previously. He's the one that was crucified, the one that died on the cross and has now overcome those things. He shows them in his own body their pardon with God. He shows them the sacking of sin. He shows them the defeat of death. He shows them his risen self and seeing him, you see in the passage, what fills their souls? Gladness. That is a Christian affection. Gladness. Now, the service isn't over, but I want us to stop and see that this is meant to make us fearless. It's meant to excite endurance for Jesus. Isn't that how Peter uses it in that first Peter? 
Don't stop gathering for Christ. Don't stop preaching Christ. Don't stop living for Christ. Don't stop standing for Christ. The things that you are heralding now, the things that are making you a distinctive draw upon the world, that gospel that you are preaching and teasing out, hashing out for the people of God, it is all true. I know that you have not seen these things, but I have. That's what Peter says. I have seen them. Keep on going. Stay the course. Endure. And of course, there's the bonus reality that what he witnessed of the sufferings of Christ, he witnessed because of the resurrection of Christ in our passage. He saw the risen Jesus still bearing those wounds. And as our sin and death is then defeated, what in the end do we really have to fear? If the raging world can only serve, even if it kills us, can only serve our lasting peace and our lasting rest, why wouldn't we be more emboldened to leave bolted spaces for lives lived out in the open for Jesus? What holds you back from such a life this morning? What I want you to see is that whatever it is, it cannot be that Christ hasn't proven to us that he is alive from the dead. We have a peace in the crucified and risen Jesus that's able to combat all fear, whether the devil's threats as we live for Jesus or the doubts in our minds when we don't. How he leads here in this passage, he still leads. He still leads because he lives. He lives to reassure us, I'm alive, peace be with you. Now see how that's transitional in our text. As I said, the service isn't over. There is a commissioning that's about to take place. But it's worth pointing out that he doubles down in verse 21 on this peace. He really wants them to see with their eyes that by his death, by his resurrection, he's made for them this kind of travel companion for all of life and even in death, and it's this peace with God. It goes with them wherever they go. Peace be with you. But it's simply Jesus has shown them the unchanging basis of their eternal salvation. He took their place on the cross. He suffered their sins for their sins. He satisfied the wrath of God. He died their death. And here He now stands. Forgiveness in hand. Job well done. This again is it is finished. Peace. If you've believed in Jesus... You have no need to fear any judgment from God. That is crazy and glorious. You have no need to fear any turning of the worm in God. In Jesus, Christian, you have irreversible cause for joy of heart, gladness in your soul. All is well with your soul. Your sins are forgiven. And it can never be otherwise than that. 
By faith you have been saved. And you're then to be sent out in this amazing grace of the very best news. And so you see he says in verse 21, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. What he means by that is not that these disciples eventually become apostles or that we even... He does not mean that they're sent out as lambs of God to take away the sins of the world and so on and so forth. That was specific to Jesus. That's not what he means here. He just means very simply, if we can put it very simply, as you see in verse 23, that they are to preach the gospel of the forgiveness of sins and then affirm all who credibly believe that gospel. That's what's going on there in verse 23, I think. In other words, first... There are to be witnesses to the crucified and risen Jesus as the revelation of God's saving love to the world. And so as you go back to the book of Acts, what do we find? What do you find there? But these very men, again, in our text here, they are scared to death. <laughs> you find them in the book of Acts then going about the whole world and preaching the gospel with special emphasis on Jesus rising from the dead. On the basis of that, you need to repent and believe in Him. That's what they're saying everywhere they go. And you see they're doing this with great authority and certainty and clarity and courage and power. So, let's be clear on a few things here. Let's be clear that there is a thing called sin. If you forgive the sins of anyone, sin. There is a thing called sin, and it's the worst evil in existence. And it is the worst evil in existence, not only because it separates us from God and threatens to do so for all eternity, but because it makes us liable to the justice of God. Not just separation, but it makes us liable to the justice of God. It makes us liable to hell. Let's also be clear then, thank God, that there is now through the death and through the resurrection of Jesus such a thing as the forgiveness of sins. Isn't that wonderful? The forgiveness of sins. What a reality. God can and will forgive sinners. In fact, Jesus has made it just for God to be gracious to sinners just like that. And we can see clearer still that this applies in that verse to anyone is what Jesus says. Any sinner with any collection of horrific sins who, as John will clarify for us at the end of the passage, who believe in Jesus Christ. So let's just be clear on all that. There is such a thing as sin. There is such a thing as forgiveness of sins for anyone who believes in Jesus Christ. You would ever be saved from your sins, you must take God at His word about Jesus. There's salvation in no one else. You must believe Jesus, that being who He alone is and doing what He alone has done, He alone can save you from your sins and give you this peace with God. But now there is, there is more here than these few things. There's not just what amounts to their preaching the grace of God to sinners, but also it seems their authority to affirm who has and has not truly received that grace. You see verse 23? It's not, 
if God forgives, if God withholds, it's if you forgive and if you withhold. And so he is giving them a massive responsibility here. And it means something initially uncomfortable for us today. And it's just this. You and I are not the final judge on our faith. Whether it's true, credible, saving. Our subjective professions of faith, our personalized professions of faith are not the end-all, be-all. I pray you have one. In fact, I just said you, you must have one of those. You must repent. You must believe yourself in Christ. But you ought to want to have one that's affirmed by a spirit-indwelled family of disciples who on the basis of the Word of God lend further assurance to its truthfulness and credibility. That's so good. That the people who know Christ best, to have them say of your profession of faith, yeah, it's real. If assurance is heaven on earth, as one put it, what Jesus is setting up here is just a foundation for surer hope. More heaven. That's why we have a process for affirming believers for membership at this church. Jesus cares that His church is pure and true, filled with believers in the gospel. Now, what we're really supposed to see, though, is the animation behind it all. What we're really supposed to see here is the power, as I said, to carry out this commission. Preaching the gospel to the world, affirming those who have believed. We need power for that. In the end, Jesus, you see, does not leave it up to us ultimately. If you look at verse 22, you see He breathes and says to them, receive who? The Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. So you have this person here, the Holy Spirit, seems to be this gifted breath of Jesus in us and in these original few, the apostles here. So, how is it that these guys right here, again, locked up in this room, how is it, we ask that question, how is it that they're going to go on to give us the New Testament? How is it that they're going to go on as some will say in the book of Acts, to turn the world, the whole world, upside down for Jesus. These guys. <laughs> How is it that they will go on to establish the church in all of God's truth and all of His order and all of His life? How is it that they will go on to be so instrumental in the adding of so many thousands to the number, but with spiritual discernment, biblical judgment, and such divine charity at the same time? How is it that they will go on to oversee the unstoppable mission of Christ in the new creation people of God amid a gospel-hostile world? These men, these men who in our text are trembling with door-bolting fear. How? Because in due time, they are actually going to receive what Jesus only depicts for them right here. This is not John's Pentecost. This is a prelude, I think, to Pentecost. If you like, it's an impending promise 
given in a parable that Jesus is acting out for them, sort of like the earlier foot washing in John chapter 13, as that foot washing looked ahead to the imminency of the cross. So this right here, this breathing out, receiving the Holy Spirit, this now looks ahead to the imminency of Christ's ascension. Jesus is letting them know they have a job to do that they cannot do themselves as it needs to be done. And so he's showing them that in short order, he will be pouring out the Holy Spirit upon all his people and these uniquely for the preaching of the gospel and the establishment of his church. Do we realize just how needy we are to go the first inch in living for Jesus. How needy we are to go the first inch in standing upon His Word, preaching the Gospel, caring about His church, tending to her fullness and her faithfulness. Do we realize how needy we are to die for Christ if need be? To die as Christ would have us. That's something different than as we would have it. Do we know how much we need the Spirit of the risen Jesus? It's shameful, I think, how lifeless and impotent a people can be who yet profess to be indwelled by the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. Again, when you go back to the book of Acts... What a people you find there. What a people you find. A resurrected people. A people diffusing the aroma of Jesus everywhere they go. You find a people who are praying together a lot. You find an army bold for Christ. You find a house of light in that darkest night. You find a family of people who are willing to die for the sake of Jesus. A family of martyrs. That's what you find in the book of Acts. A people who are alive with the Spirit of Christ. When we look upon ourselves and we look upon the church today, one of the questions we have to ask is, was that just for the church back then? And we're just supposed to live beneath that until Christ returns? I don't think so. What we need is to recover what we tend to neglect. We need the power of the risen Christ for carrying out His commission in the world. Indwelled by the Spirit of God, we need to weep and we need to wail and we need to plead again for the influence of the Holy Spirit. What I'm saying there, I'm saying to myself, as much as anybody in here, well, this brings us to doubting Thomas and to the presentation of the risen Christ to remove all doubt. It cannot be more vital vitalizing, reviving, life-giving than to believe really that Jesus is alive and to receive from Him as such. 
As I said, there's, that's one reason we gather as we do on the Lord's Day, like this. But you'll see in verse 24, if you look there, that despite Mary's report, right, Mary has come along and she said, I have seen the Lord. It's not just that the tomb is empty, I've seen Him. I've seen the Lord. Despite that, Thomas has missed the first Easter service. How could he? He wasn't with them when Jesus came. So he missed the peace of Christ. So he missed the proofs of Christ. Hands, sigh, see it. So he missed the purpose of Christ. As I have been sent by the Father, so I am sending you. He missed that. So he missed the the power of Christ that we need for it all. He missed the person of Christ. In missing out on that gathering, he missed the risen Lord. He missed out on the gladness that all those other disciples now possessed in their hearts. So we don't miss out on these times. We don't miss out on these times together without missing so very much that otherwise might have served to relieve exactly the illness in our souls. These gatherings of the risen Jesus are fountains of spiritual life for the deserts that are in us. They are bulwarks of the risen Christ for the tempests, the storms that are in us. In missing it, grave doubt, you see, a great storm of doubt did not miss Thomas, the island of Thomas. Notice the other disciples, men he's come to know and trust, who've just seen and received from the Lord of life. They come and they tell Thomas, their brother, just that. They say, listen, it's just as Mary said. We too have seen the Lord. And as that should be sufficient for Thomas, we just need to see how Thomas responds in verse 25. It does not matter what they've seen or what they say. Their apostolic word is not enough for Thomas in this moment. Hearing the truth is not enough. It does not matter that Thomas has heard Jesus say, I am going to rise from the dead. It doesn't matter that Thomas has seen Jesus raise people from the dead. Lazarus, come forth. Unless he now sees, unless he touches, unless he has empirical evidence now, he says, I will never believe. Never is a long time. Is that where you are, friend? What God has been pleased to give for faith in Jesus Christ, Thomas finds insufficient. Is that where you are? As we are right now in history, this is where we all stand. Hearing, but not seeing. Deciding, 
even as a believer, is that enough? Is the word enough? Let's go on. See that there is a fact, I want you to see, there is a fact that Thomas believes, no doubt about it. In saying he has to see the wounds in his hands, see the wound in his side, what does Thomas confirm for us? Thomas confirms that Jesus was in fact crucified and that he did in fact die. You see that? He confirms that. That's not up for debate for those who are nearest to the event of the cross of Christ. What is then coincidentally doubtful for Thomas is whether Jesus' death on the cross was really God's method of grace to sinners. That's what he's doubtful of. Did Jesus just suffer on the cross? Did he just die on the cross? Or did he thereby also save his people from their sins? That's what's on the line because you see, that's what's at stake in the resurrection. If Jesus did not rise, he's dead. If he's alive, did Jesus' cross effectively achieve the redemptive purpose of God? That's the question. Thomas says, The death of Jesus is a no-doubter. But the resurrection of Jesus, God's vindication of the death of Jesus, He says, I will never believe that unless I. And so friend, do you have an, an unless I? Do you have a list of demands that Christ must meet? The cross is not enough. (laughs) Do you have a list of demands that Christ must meet before you'll believe the truth as if the word of his love and grace were not enough? Unless I get what I want out of this scenario, wealth and whatever, health, unless I get that, I will never believe. Unless I can persist in that one sin that I really, really like, I will never believe. Unless I see sufficient enough to me, because I'm the judge, I will never believe. If you persist in that, the truth is, you will never believe. Because believing is not based in what you can discern with your eyes. It's based upon a work of God in your heart. Jesus says in Luke chapter 16, you can check it later, Luke 16, that you could have seen Him with your eyes. You could have seen Him walk out of the tomb. But unless you have eyes that work spiritually, unless you have eyes to see and a heart that trusts the Word of God, you would still find a way, some way to unsee what you had seen. You would not have believed it. You would identify what happened there as some kind of fake news. You would have come up with some excuse, just as was happening in Israel around the time of His resurrection. 
How many signs did the Israelites see? And how many actually believed? It's a work in the heart. Now, let's be certain that these were not utterly gullible people. (laughs) They come and they're like, the crucified Jesus, we saw him. Thomas Thomas is not like, sweet. These are not utterly gullible people. Let's also be certain that the cross of Christ was of such a reality and such a blow to their hearts that even his disciples, like Thomas, were spiritually dazed and hard of hearing in their hearts. And it's in light of that that John would have us stand amazed at the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. It's now the next Sunday. A week has passed. And Thomas, to his credit, is present. You see? He's present. By the grace of God, perhaps a week in that kind of misery has made him hopeful on the basis of what they've said for mercy. You'll note the doors are still locked. (laughs) Uh, How we do need that ascension to come as quickly as possible. Um, The doors are still locked here. Again, it's not just Thomas wrestling with doubt and disbelief, but it's into it then that Jesus again a third time now appears to hold service with them this next Sunday. We just need to praise God that our locked doors, whatever they are, Right? Our locked up hearts, our fears, our slowness, our doubts cannot keep Jesus out and away from us. And here, while he greets them all with fresh peace, see, I just want you to see that he never loses sight of the one on account of the many. Peace, he says to all, but then... It says in our text, he turns and speaks directly to Thomas. What a shepherd. For our good, he may let us feel the pangs of our disbelief for a week or more. But as we are his sheep, this shepherd will not let us feel the pangs of our disbelief forever. Thomas has disbelieved the apostolic word about the crucified and risen Jesus, and his demands for faith have only made it more wonderful that Jesus is infinitely merciful. For Thomas and for us then, Jesus says, hey Thomas, (laughs) put your finger here. Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it right here in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Believe, that is, that though I really did die on the cross, my God and your God has raised me up and He's raised me up, Savior of the world. Thomas, Thomas, 
I didn't just suffer there. I did not just suffer there. I really did save there. And I didn't just save generally there. I really saved you there, Thomas. That's why I'm here for you. Believe and be glad. Amen. And this is greatly why, as Jude says, this Jesus' half-brother, Jude says, we're to have mercy on those who doubt. Because as you see in verse 28, it is a most critical doubter who now becomes the greatest confessor that there ever has been. He sees the crucified Jesus raised. And it gives Thomas words that rise to the level of worship. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my what? God. Oh my. Seeing Jesus like this not only erased all doubts, it supplied stunning revelation. Mere men, as one put it, do not rise from the dead in this fashion. Lazarus rose from the dead. Thomas saw Lazarus alive from the dead. He did not say, my Lord and my God, to Lazarus. Okay? He says that to Jesus because Jesus in rising from the dead, there's something different going on. He has a glorified body. He's incorruptible, imperishable. He's never going to die again. Lazarus did. This is something else. And Thomas, getting this, says this, and is right in what he says. And we have to note that Jesus does not rebuke Thomas as if what he said was wrong. My Lord and my God, Jesus says, that's absolutely right. Jesus is God incarnate. And thus, He is the Savior of all who believe. Do you see how Jesus does respond to Thomas's newfound conviction? You have believed, Thomas. Be sure, it's not just because you've seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those. That again is Jesus taking care of Thomas and you and me. The time is now that Jesus is out of our sight. And He wants us to be sure that our faith in Him isn't somehow deficient because we can't see Him. Instead, He says, no, actually, you're the blessed ones. It becomes all the more apparent that God's begun a work of grace in your heart when, without seeing Him, as Peter says, again in 1 Peter chapter 1, when without seeing Him, yet you still love Him. You believe in Him. And you rejoice with joy inexpressible and filled with glory. That is a work of grace in your heart. You do that without seeing Jesus, and what becomes seen, evident, manifest, visible, is that the risen Jesus has raised your soul from the dead. 
And that brings us to John's purpose statement. After a couple of years now in this gospel, always sad for me to come to the end of books. We have a couple more weeks. We're not quite there. But after a couple of years now, we finally arrived at it. And of course, he's timed it up perfectly with all the themes in front of us. He tells us in verse 30 that he was selective. What, I mean, that's incredible, right? He was selective in what he wrote about Jesus. There were many other signs that he did in front of the disciples. Many other things he'll say that Jesus did that if written would flood the whole world. The whole world could not contain what he did. And you just go and read back through John and you're seeing him, you know, feed 20,000 people from a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish and doing all these, raising dudes from the dead. And you're like, really? There's more? It's an amazing assertion. But here he says he's only written what he's thought best suited for faith in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, and the giver of eternal life. So what we have in this gospel are the choicest fruits to that greatest end. All the things God knows we most need to believe once and for all and then solidly throughout life as disciples of Jesus Christ. He is the divine Christ that God sent into this perishing, this passing, this dying world to give eternal life to all who believe in Him. You say, how has He obtained such a gift as that? And why on earth would He give it to such a wretch as me? And the answer is just the gospel. It's just that wonderful news that in love, Jesus lived without sin. He died on the cross for our sins. And He rose again. The Savior of sinners and the Lord of life. Dear friend, if you have not yet this morning, believe. That's what John is after. Believe. You believe in Christ, you will live. Forgiven your sins, at peace with God, alive to the truth, at home with the faithful, unable to ever be separated from the love of Christ. Won't you believe in Him this morning? And beloved, is that life? Is that life? Is it lively in you today? Is it awake? Is it well? How is your courage? You still all bolted up? Or are you out there in the open for Jesus? How is your courage? How is your peace? How is your advancement in Jesus? How is your love? How is your counsel? These disciples, they come to Thomas, they know he needs this counsel. We've seen the Lord. You giving good counsel like that to those who need it? You growing in that? How's your conviction? Do not disbelieve. Understand that. Jesus does not want us to live in disbelief. He wants us to be convicted about the truth. Believe. How's your conviction? How's your evangelism? John's written everything he's written so that you might believe. 
How's your evangelism? How is your worship? Is it all Thomas? Is it all my Lord and my God? Because if not, if not, you cannot be in a better place than right here before the words of the crucified and risen Jesus. For your fears, He speaks His peace. For your weaknesses, He promises His power. For your doubts, He makes this presentation of Himself and urges you to believe. So, as you sit just now, don't doubt any longer. Don't doubt. Be strengthened. Fear not. Be glad. Be so very glad. The things we need most for a life of faithfulness, Jesus lives and loves to give to us. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. It is truly a living Word. Make it to live and act in us right now. Our risen Savior, cause our hearts to rise with joy and gladness and worship and peace and boldness for your sake. Oh, how we need it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.